0: Well, we've covered uh, some good ground in 1 Corinthians so far. Grab your journal and uh, I'm going to cover in a little more detail chapter 5 and I'm going to move a little faster in chapter 6 and basically read most of it, make a few comments. But there's a few places where I want you to make a, a couple of notes in your journal. Let me back up to what we talked about in the last few weeks. I had a sermon, Pastor David had a sermon that leads to this. Paul started talking about Us collectively, when we assemble together, and he used this southern word, y'all, and he said, y'all, when you, y'all as the church collectively are God's temple. And he meant there in Corinth, obviously, so it's fair for me to say to you this morning, y'all are God's temple here in Fort Worth. In a temple, you find the image of what's being worshipped. It's says Temple 101, whether it's an idol temple or God's temple, find an image of what's being worshipped. In this context, you're not allowed to make graven images of God. You, according to Genesis 2, are the living images of God. So when you come to church on Sunday morning here at Cornerstone, you expect to find the living images of God you expect with good reason to encounter the moving of the Holy Spirit because he dwells in the temple of God what I'm trying to get across to you is the church is holy to God now whether it's holy to the unsaved world in our community and that's irrelevant at this moment it's holy to God and his perspective is the one we're here to gain some understanding of The church is holy to God, and my argument from two weeks ago is, therefore, the church must become holy in our sight also. God's temple is holy, and that's what you are. The church uh, needs to be viewed by us as God's alternative to the world. Uh, This is not where you come to hear the world's wisdom. This is not where you come to hear uh, pop psychology. This is not where you come to hear the world's theory of things. This is where you come, as Paul is saying, to hear the wisdom of God. When we assemble, our assembly bursts forth with sounds of God being praised and God being worshipped. That's what you expect to happen when God's people assemble You can interact in an assembly like this with other people who are reflecting God's values, other people whose hearts are filled with the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying to you this morning by way of an opening challenge is don't take God's church lightly. We, y'all, represent God in this community. And I'm going to say it to you another way. If you don't represent God in this community, then pray tell who does. You do represent God in this community, so therefore, my thesis this morning is simply this, what I do affects my community. I want you to hold on to that phrase because you're going to see it a few times this morning. What I do, plug your name here, what I do affects my community. So since you're a part of the body of Christ, now we're moving to this part of 1 Corinthians that gets really dicey. You've been waiting for this. It gets really dicey, okay? Because Paul is going to address things in an open manner that now need to be addressed because nobody will address them. This is the whole point of chapter 5 on immorality, and they will not deal with immorality in the church, so Paul says we're going to have to deal with some things now. But before I get to the immorality, I've got to frame it in questions that kind of set the stage for Corinth and, and for us. So since you're a part of the body of Christ, let me ask you the questions that basically Paul's going to put to them. Do, do you believe that the church should follow the Bible? Now that seems like, well, duh, you know, we're at church, Pastor. I mean, if we didn't believe in the Bible and following the Bible, would we even be here this morning? And I know it seems like a given, but do we actually believe that the church should follow the Bible? Because I think that's something you have to settle in your heart this morning. And if you're good with that, and I think we're all good with that this morning, let me go to the second question. As the elders set the agenda for how we're going to carry out the mission of Christ now, do you want the church elders to follow the Bible? Now I'm assuming you already have this expectation in your heart that those that have been made elders over the church, those who lead the Agenda and how we carry out the mission, uh, that you have an expectation here as a member that those elders are following the Bible and how they carry out the mission and the method of Jesus Christ. And and they do. Your trust, I think, is well placed. Let me ask you a third question. Since one of the main themes of 1 Corinthians is church unity, we've talked about this now for many weeks. Since one of the main themes is church unity, let me ask a unity question. If your church elders follow the Bible, will you follow them? Now I want to put some things in context, because when Paul's speaking to the church at Corinth, there is only one church in Corinth. Now there's much temples in Corinth where you can worship Aphrodite in a big sexual orgy, if you want to, or you can go down the street to the temple of uh, uh, Bacchus. And you can also worship there in a big orgy if you want to. And I could just keep going, but for sensitivity issues, I'll just stop. But that's what worship looked like in Corinth. There's only one church of Jesus Christ. It looks like it meets in Chloe's house. It's probably, I know—I'm know, I'm just, it's a wild conjecture. David helped 25 to 50 people maybe. I mean, how many people could we cram into your house? your house is probably bigger than her house. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Alan, I don't know how many people we've had. Tammy, how many of you? We have hosted about 40 at your house, I'm sure. 30 or 40 people. Your house is bigger probably than Chloe's house. And made for entertaining. Hers was not made for that. So you get the gist. It's a smaller setup. It's like we saw. It's a house church. Okay. Everyone knows everyone pretty much. Uh... And it's the only church of Jesus Christ. You are God's temple. You represent God in this city. And what you do affects your community. Now the church is divided and has all kinds of problems. And Paul's writing back. And what he's saying to them is it is critical for you to stay unified and united around the leaders as they do their best to follow the teaching of God's word. And now I'll just speak for us here. I, I believe you have, and I believe you will, and I, I believe that's why God is blessing you the way He is. And I, I ask those questions out loud so that we can have an open assent to that because I want those who are new here who maybe don't have history with you, or those who are watching around the world and our disciples who are listening into our series, to know that part of the key to being effective is church unity around the mission and around the gospel of Jesus Christ. For four chapters, Paul's been hammering that nail of unity, stop the divisions, I hear there are divisions, quit the divisions, and now he comes to these very dicey chapters. Oh, what are the theologians we've been reading David? Ticklish matters is what they said. Very ticklish matters. Uh, very, Very British way of saying it, I think. Uh, there's two specific situations that are about to be dealt with. Two specific situations that, are, that have resulted from drifting from the gospel. Two situations that have resulted because of a crisis, a lack of leadership in the church of Corinth. And so Paul's going to address two of those main issues. And, and rather than taking a unified stand on immorality and internal disputes, the church is acting just like the unsaved world. And Paul's really not going to address too much the individual sinner, but he's going to address the total congregation and say, guys, what is going on? And the two issues at hand are they're bragging about their open-mindedness and tolerance of sin. See how spiritual we are? By what we allow. See how spiritual we are about our open-mindedness towards sin. At the same time, the second issue is that they are involved in lawsuits, church member suing church member, because they cannot resolve the conflicts within the church. Now those are the two issues you're about to see. That's chapter 5 and chapter 6. First of all, let's deal with Paul's reaction to sexual immorality in the church. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported... Now, you can write the words zero Corinthians right there in your margin. How was it reported? These letters and these messengers going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians, there's a whole series of letters we do not have. We keep referring to them as zero Corinthians or Corinthians the prequel. First Corinthians is not the first exchange between parties and Paul is now referring back to those communiques and saying, guys, it's actually reported... That there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality, underline this phrase, that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Now he's writing to the temple of God and saying, now it's reported there's sexual immorality among you. No, pause that. There's sexual immorality among you that's not even named by the pagan people who worship in the orgies down here at the temple of Aphrodite. Now that is a statement. That's a big statement. What in the world were these people involved in that was beyond even what the pagan Gentiles would allow? Paul clarifies, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So now word has reached Paul that there's open immorality being practiced within the congregation, not just immorality, a kind of immorality that is so destructive that the pagans wouldn't even practice this. Now let me give you just a little notes if you want to make them here. The word immorality is the Greek word porneia. I guess you can figure out what the connections are, right? Porneia. It basically means to go to prostitutes to pay for sex. That's basically the root definition of porneia. But porneia became a... An umbrella term. It was a little broader than that. Eventually they would use the word in Greek to refer to extramarital activity, aberrant sexual activity, homosexual activity. It just became an umbrella now. So when the word's used, you kind of have to look at the context a little bit to see exactly what's being said. And Paul has clarified with precise language exactly the type of porneia that they're involved in, incest. Verse 2. Watch how he opens verse 2. And you are arrogant. You got an exclamation point right there. You may just want to underline that. Because it's the attitude of the church now that really, really has Paul pretty worked up here. And you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So what you want to ask yourself as Paul starts to address this issue, what is the attitude of the congregation? Are they ashamed? Are they embarrassed? No, not at all. No, they're like, well, yeah. Well, yeah, we have some incest and a little bestiality here, a little prostitution there, and a little this here, and a little homosexuality. and just, Yeah. What's your problem, Paul? See, we are advanced down here at Corinth. We operate on a higher spiritual level than you do. You, with your narrowness and your Jewish background, have a lot of sexual hang-ups that we don't have. We are people of the Spirit. And therefore, what we're doing in the flesh, you're not allowed to judge us on that. See how advanced we are by what we allow. Our tolerance reveals our spiritual maturity. Does this sound like America at all to you? That's the point of studying 1 Corinthians. Because the wheel of history has turned 2,000 times, and yet here we are. And we're saying the same thing in our culture, and it's sweeping over into our churches. Let's show everyone how free we are in Christ. We'll just tolerate everything in the name of higher spirituality. Now, what you know as the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian view on human sexuality that you inherited here largely in America, that view of Judeo-Christian ethics and specifically connected to sexuality was not absorbed easily by those who were converting to Christianity in the first century or in other cultures even today in modern history. The Judeo-Christian view on sexual is not easily absorbed by people who grew up in a different tradition, especially one of idolatry, connected to this type of open sexual expression. Now, I'm going to be very careful with my language if I can, so you all tiptoe with me just a little bit here. The pagan views of not assigning morality to sexual expressions outside of marriage was often carried over after their conversion into the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it a different way. When you get saved, all of your previous life doesn't go away like that. Now, if you're one of the few who, by a miracle of God's grace just walked away from every sinful habit immediately the day you got saved, then we rejoice with you in that miracle of grace in your life. But for many, many people, it becomes a, 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 a period of time, a sanctification period, a process whereby those habits were learning to grow past them and to crucify them for Jesus Christ, if you would, to walk away from that past and change our sinful habits and their pagan views on sexuality they brought into the church after they became followers of christ and therefore sexuality is a recurring theme in the new testament letters now a lot of people think it's a uh, recurring theme because christianity is hung up on puritanical sexual views Uh, that is not the case at all the problem is, it's a pagan problem. They had a, such an immoral, open view of sexuality with temple prostitutes and with prostitutes and with anything goes type of ideology that when they brought that over in the church, Paul constantly has to address it because the Gentiles are coming to Christ but don't know how now to govern their views on sexuality. The Bible's not hung up on it. The pagans were... Hung up on it. So Paul has to constantly address it with Gentile idolaters coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And let me just illustrate my point very quickly. For instance, when Paul was dealing with the people in Thessalonica, Gentiles converted from idolatry, he had to write to the Thessalonians these words For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is God's will your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body, the body's important, we're gonna talk about it, in holiness and honor. For instance, this is what Paul had to write to the Colossians, the people of Colossae, who were pagan idolaters, converted to Jesus Christ. Here's what he told him. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. For instance, this is what Paul had to write to the Ephesians where they worshipped Diana, again, in this orgiastic fashion. Here's what he told the Ephesians. For you know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Now, you will find this conversation as a recurring theme in the New Testament, not because God's hung up on sexuality. And again, I want to choose my language carefully, but God put all the nerve endings in all the right places. Ask yourself why. Why? because he wanted you to enjoy your human sexuality. But he wanted you to enjoy it within a context, not without a context. Pagan cultures do not view open sexuality as immoral. God does, however. And his viewpoint is the one I have to comply with. So what's the church to do? When a member is engaged in open immorality, something that's so heinous that it's now tearing the church apart, it's ruining everyone's testimony, we are all now associated with the person's immorality because the 40 of us who meet in the house every week are known by our community to be the oddball Jesus followers. We don't go down to the temples and involve ourselves in their open sexual immorality but now they learn that we have immorality in our church that's worse than their immorality. Can anybody see how this is a problem? And it's pulling the church apart, and it's threatening the gospel. And what is the church to do when having discussions with this person, and the person says, no, God doesn't care, it's fine. See how advanced I am? I'm a person of the Spirit. I have Jesus, and therefore, I'm okay. Mind your own business. What is the church supposed to do? This is the crisis. Let me read verse 2 and then I'm going to go forward. And you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? Underline this phrase. Remove from your congregation the one who did this. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. When you are assembled... In the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, in the power of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5, I want you to underline this. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Now, you should be asking yourself right about now, well, what does this mean? Remove from the congregation, verse 5, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In what way? Are they to remove the person from the congregation? Well, to remove from the congregation means to break fellowship with such a person. Not to fellowship with such a person. Uh, The Greek word carries the term to mix. You know what a mixer is, right? I have a little mixer at my house. We're going to come and mix together. Well, there's going to be food and drink and fellowships, what it sounds like to me. Uh, The Greek is saying to us, don't mix. No fellowship with this person And if the church will do this in a unified way, the brother will suddenly wake up tomorrow and realize the church has put him out collectively, and he will see the the error of his ways. In other words, if 40 people think what you're doing is immoral, and you're the one person who doesn't think it's immoral, do you really think you're right and everyone else is wrong? Are we that individualistic? That we think 2,000 years of Christians are wrong and now suddenly we're right. Because we've advanced and we're more evolved and we're more spiritual. This is the thinking here. What's the unification of the church against the brother? Put him out. Why? So he can be punished? Well, it may be a form of punishment, but the goal is not punishment. The goal is repentance. The goal is a change in behavior which leads to restoration. Now again he uses some strong language here this is a little bit scary language hand the person over to Satan. What in the world does that mean to put the hand them over to Satan? Well it, what it means is you're going to exclude them from the gathered community of believers and this community of believers experiences constantly the presence of God's spirit the power of God's presence. We are encouraged weekly By the gifts of the Spirit that we all possess that edify and lift and encourage the body of Christ. You're excluded from that environment. You're excluded from the love and care of the church family. Now, I think a lot of times this is taught incorrectly that Paul expects Satan to kill him. I don't think Paul expects Satan to kill him. Although, I guess it's a possibility. It's not really clarified in the passage. But I don't think... Think what Paul's saying is you're going to put him outside the protective care and encouragement of the church. You're going to put him out into Satan's realm, out into the world. Now, I at least want you to see this, that Paul thinks being a part of the church fellowship is a very privileged thing, a very blessed and holy thing, and that to be outside of the fellowship of the church is to be in a dangerous position. Now, I'm saying this to anyone who gets distanced from the church by your own decisions. Lay out a little while. A Sunday turns into a month. A month turns into a year. A year turns into ten years. Yeah, I believe in Christ. I'm just not sure I believe in the church. You better check your theology because God does. The church is holy. This is His body. And to be outside the care of the church is to be in a dangerous context and a vo- it's like the sheep getting cut from the flock. You are vulnerable To Satan I think that's what Paul is saying and I I don't think Paul expects that Satan's going to kill this guy because by the time we get to chapter 11 Paul's talking about don't have dinner with him and you couldn't have dinner with someone who's dead by chapter 11 okay so I don't think Paul's thinking that Satan's going to kill him the words also are not an execration formula. By that I mean these are not the words that I make in an official pronouncement of the church in, in, in a verbal curse that I'm supposed to say when we expel someone and now we hand you over to Satan for the destruction. It's not like a curse is being placed on this guy. They don't want him dead and they don't want him cursed. They want him to repent so that they can all break bread and be one unified family in Jesus Christ. Now, it's going to get more uncomfortable, so hold on. Remember, though, you're reading someone else's mail. Okay? This was not written to you, but it was preserved for you, so you'd know how to manage your own situation right here in the temple of God here in Fort Worth. And as you're reading someone else's mail, I'm going to remind you this is an extreme situation of immorality. It's an extreme situation of immorality that was known to everyone in the small house church. And every member of the church is hereby implicated in the eyes of their pagan community because they not only tolerated the situation, but they were, Paul's word, arrogant about it. Well, now it's escalated and it's destroying the church. No one wants to deal with it. Isn't that a common human reaction? I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to touch that with ten foot pole. No one wants to deal with it. So Paul demands that they deal with it. And so you can understand now why tension is escalating between Paul, the founder of the church, and the church he founded. Tension is rising between the two parties. And here is the tension: Will the Corinthians follow Paul's gospel? which has ethical implications? Or will the Corinthians continue to pursue their own spirituality that prides itself in open immorality and threatens to destroy God's temple? There is the tension we live in. So now Paul's going to use an illustration. Most of you don't bake your own bread. You run down to Kroger, grab a loaf of Mrs. Baird's and run back home. But when he talks about Passover and baking and leaven, his audience understood a crystal what he's about to say. And so he uses this language now. By purging out the man who refuses to follow the Bible, you're going to purge, if it were, the leaven out of the bread. Let me read verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? I want you just to underline this phrase clean out the old leaven. If you see that, then you see what Paul is saying by way of the clean out the old leaven. We're going to clean out this situation so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth why remove someone from the congregation why clean out the old leaven that's what's being addressed now paul's saying it's time to clean out from the church this one who refuses to repent and i want you to break fellowship with them all of you it only works if you stay united and by the way this is why it hardly works in america Because if we had to discipline a church member, they would just go down the street to the next church and join, slide right in, and keep living their immoral lifestyle, and no one would be the wiser. Because the churches are very fragmented in America, it's part of what's very broken in America right now. We are segmented and non-cooperative and sectarian, and we're just in a mess, But this is what Paul is calling for. He's like, now we're not going to associate with this person. And if you stand united in your disapproval of this behavior, I believe it will lead to repentance. I'm not going to crush the person. We're not going to destroy the person. We're not going to ruin the person in the community. We're going to isolate the person so they will repent. And they will come back to Christ. And we can be a happy family once again. Because what I do affects my community. Let this get deep into your heart. We live in a big city and we have a big church and nobody really knows your business. No one knows everybody's business, like 40 people in a small community. Anybody grow up in a small town? I don't even need to explain to you. You understand what I'm saying. A small town, everybody knows everything about everybody. It's not that way living here in the big metropolis you live in. No one knows your business you're gliding under the radar largely. You know it's not known, which again is why you need to be in a discipleship group. You say, why? So someone will know my business? Exactly. Amen. Praise God. Because somebody needs to keep every one of us in a little bit of check. Amen. Not in a bad way. Not not you know dominating over you. No no. But somebody who's praying for you and knowing what your struggles are, and helping you move beyond the struggles. And this again, as David, you preach this, Paul like a father saying to his children, it hurts me to see you in this mess. Let me speak to you plainly and let's get the family back together. And for a while, we're going to have to put this prodigal out for a little bit. And and let's pray because what he's doing is affecting the whole community. There's something about a bad apple or something. Let's get it out of here. And let's be healthy. So now, Paul, in the movement here of verse number 9, corrects a misunderstanding about separation. If I use the word separation to somebody who grew up in my tradition, a real conservative Baptist background, the word separation has a very distinct meaning to you, doesn't it? So Paul's about to clarify a misunderstanding about separation. Verse 9, I wrote unto you in a letter... I want you to write in the margin of your journal, Zero Corinthians. Wouldn't you like to have the letter that Paul wrote to them? And we would know exactly what he had already told them that they had put in the shredder and dismissed as being inferior, you know, spirituality. But Paul has already written them a letter. We don't have it. But Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter, Zero Corinthians. And what did Paul write in that letter? Not to associate... Just underline that little phrase. Not to associate. So Paul has already written to the Corinthians about their close associations and who they're having fellowship with. And in that letter, Paul wrote them. Here's what he said. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. The Corinthians are confused about what Paul said. He's about to clarify. And it should perk your ears right up to be edified with this teaching right here. Listen carefully. I did not mean... Underline that phrase. How do you know Paul's clarifying? Because he's saying to them now, I wrote you this, you clearly are confused. I did not mean... I did not mean not to associate with the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to what? Do you, do you hear the practicality of Paul's argument here? If I said to you as your pastor, you're not allowed to associate with sinners, well, where are you going to go, Mars? I mean, where are you going to go? You would have to leave this world not to associate with sinners. Does that make sense? So Paul's like, no, you misunderstood the meaning of what I was saying. The only way to avoid associating with immoral people outside the church is to leave planet Earth. That's not what I'm teaching you. Now, I came, as I said a minute ago, from the tradition of real conservative Baptist background. And we would often hear in our meetings uh, a pastor or someone talk about, I'm putting in air quotes, biblical separation. Yeah, biblical separation was a term. And what that tradition meant was that you were not allowed to associate with sinners, only the saved. And if you grew up in one of those youth departments, you were told you're not allowed to have unsaved friends. You're not allowed to run with Christian people. And uh, you do not allowed to associate with sinners. Now, hear me carefully. This is exactly 180 degrees the opposite of what the Bible's teaching. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite of what the Bible's teaching. God expects us to let our light shine among the unsaved community. God expects us to befriend the unsaved. God expects us to love the lost and to have conversations constantly with people who are outside of the church. Watch Paul clarify. Verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone, underline this phrase, who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. All right, so what's Paul's clarification for the church this morning? God is not telling you you can't befriend the lost world and love them and associate with them. God's telling you you're not allowed to befriend Christian brothers and sisters who are immoral. Do not eat with them. That's a whole different thing than you were probably taught growing up. And that's the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now let me show you why. And let me me develop it just a little bit further. Verse 12. For what business is it of mine... ...to judge outsiders. Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges the outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Now here's what I want you to do if you've got a journal. See verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? I want you to underline that phrase and I want you to draw an arrow... To the opening clause of verse 13. What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? God judges outsiders. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not your business to judge the lost world. That's God's business. You say, well, someone needs to stay... We're going to follow the Bible, amen? God says, I'll handle that. You've got your hands full handling this. Matter of fact, I'm going to be very specific with you this morning. God's got that. I've got my hands full handling this right here. All of this mess will occupy me pretty much nonstop. Okay? I want you to draw another arrow. That second clause in verse 12, do you judge those who are inside? Draw an arrow over to the second clause of verse 13 so that it would read like this. Do you judge those who are inside? Remove the evil person from among you. Paul's being very clear here on what he's saying. He's clarifying very painstakingly. He's not addressing the individual involved in the immoral lifestyle, he's not chewing them out and spitting them out publicly. Paul's addressing the church community as a whole, and he's very concerned about their attitudes towards sin, their attitudes towards church leadership, specifically. Will the church follow his leadership on this issue? And what he's telling the church is that we are to self-govern the church. God will take care of judging those outside the church. And Paul is clear on what to do in cases of defiant, again defiant, rebellious, arrogant Christian brothers or sisters... Who are living contrary to the scripture and just flaunting it in everyone's face has removed them from the congregation. Now, do you understand why I asked the questions I asked earlier? Do you want your church elders to follow the Bible? Do you still want your church elders to follow the Bible? You should be saying yes, but you should also feel something very uncomfortable right now in the pit of your stomach. And you feel that because you know that we're all sinners. And so even though you say, yeah, pastor, I want you guys to follow the Bible as you lead the church, you're also saying, but please don't look too closely at my lifestyle. You feel that reality in the pit of your stomach. You feel internal conflict. And I get that. I I feel it too. Passages like this make us all just want to throw up a little bit. This is why we appoint elders to oversee the church who are very spiritually mature. I'm going to walk very carefully right here and I want you to hear every word. You want the elders to do this, right? To follow the Bible. And that's why we're very careful about having the right people in those seats. Because you want somebody whose spiritual maturity is way where it needs to be. You want a group of people who have incredible relationship skills, who get people. You want people who are involved in people's lives, not people who are living in some ivory tower disconnected from the congregation. You want men and women who are spirit-filled and can discern a situation very carefully. You want people that are slow. You don't want impulsive reactors. You want them to be slow and steady, pray about it, Come to the right answer, loving, kind, patient, long suffering, merciful leaders of the church. That's what you want. You say, Well, Pastor, I've been here for, you know, a while now, and I've never seen us put someone outside the church. Praise God. That's a victory. Means we've been able to internally govern the situation and bring people to repentance and never had to make a scandal out of it. Is that fair? For members living in open defiance of biblical standards, the elders are praying for that person. They are having conversations about what to do, they are walking very carefully in conversations with those people. And the elders understand that extreme actions like this are reserved for extreme cases. Else the church will be empty next Sunday. Let's just start putting out people who have sinned in their life. Well, I don't know who's going to preach and lead the worship because I guarantee you Jeremy and I won't be here. Maybe David's got a clean life on that level. I don't know, but let's put everybody else out. Now, that's not what God intends. And listen, we try to coach a lot of churches. When we go to coach the elders and the pastors, they'll sit down with us and they'll, one of the first things they'll do is they'll pull out their book and they'll show us the list of people who are on church discipline. And they brag about it. They are arrogant about it. In an opposite way now, see these are all the people we 've put out of the church i 'm like well what's the what's the path to restoring them? What conversations are we having with them? How quickly can we get them restored and back in the congregation? I dealt with a church one day that had put a guy on church discipline about ten years ago i don 't even think he was saved when they put him on church discipline so I, Because later he went off to Bible college, got saved, surrendered to preach, went to a foreign country as a mission field, married a Christian girl, and he's led hundreds of people to Christ since then. I was in his village one day and they said he's still on the church discipline list. I'm like, well, do you think we could get him off? Because since you've had him on the church discipline list, he's led half another country to Christ. While y'all have been sitting here on your thrones judging him. What's the path to restoration? Pastor David Fry was with me. And the church council there dismissed us. Dismissed Pastor David and I. And they said, you're not allowed to speak to us like this. You're dismissed. I said, well, I've been kicked out of other places too, so okay. (laughs) What I'm saying is, I want you to rejoice a little in your hearts this morning. For two reasons. One, we intend to follow the Bible. But number two, you're led By some people who understand this is an extreme case. And when we deal with sin in our lives, in your lives, in our children's lives. Listen, you want to start putting teenagers out of the church who are involved in immorality? Let me ask you, how big of a youth department would you like to have? (laughs) Because you'll have zero if we start doing that. So you're going to have to walk very carefully. Yet, we're going to have to maintain biblical purity in youth department. And we're going to have to champion that. You say, well, how? how?" Exactly. Exactly. Welcome to Corinth. Welcome to Fort Worth. We're trying to win a generation to be Christ's followers in a a post-Christian culture now, in a pagan culture. And it's, I'll speak Texan, it ain't easy. It ain't easy following Jesus. But again, we're going to be, we're going to balance what we know to do biblically with Understanding this is extreme, what we're dealing with in this context, and our goal is restoration and repentance, and I feel confident that our elders will act in a loving, caring way to bring about repentance and restoration, and some tough love at times will be called for in our families and in our church family, and deep inside you may say, man, I just don't like talking about this, Pastor, this is okay, then self-govern. Then self-govern. Now, I'll just jump ahead a little bit and reveal what's coming, but in chapter 11, verse 31, here's what Paul's going to tell them. If we we were properly judging ourselves, what would happen? We we would not be judged. So if you'll just self-govern and follow the Bible in your own life, problem solved. Do you see how easy that is? Problem solved solved. And let me show you why this was the right answer and I really need to move quickly right now. But this was the right answer for the church at Corinth. And they made the right decision because it turns out by removing the person, it only turned out to be temporary, because by the time you read Second Corinthians, the man has repented. And Paul says, now restore him into the congregation and receive him in love. He is your brother. We're going to welcome him back. He's restored. He's repented. He's got the situation right and And now that he has repented, we as a church are going to move forward. And we're not going to go backwards and deal with that again. And I want to say when somebody repents, we're not going to talk about it for the next 20 years. They're not going to be that person who got restored. No, they're going to be just like the rest of us. And we're going to move forward together in love and do the work of Jesus Christ. Because no one who sins within our community is beyond the restorative love of our community. See, this principle needs to be tied to the church discipline principle because no one who sins in our family is beyond the restorative love of our family. Wow, you guys did so good with that. Just let me read a few verses now and we'll have chapter 6 knocked out because now what Paul's about to do is he's about to react to lawsuits between believers. Let me read. If any of you has a dispute against another, you might want to underline this next phrase, How dare you? Now, doesn't that sound like, that's like very familiar language right there. Be like your parents. How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. How dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before saints? Do you understand the argument already? There's disputes in the church. In other words, Jeremy lives next door to uh, uh, jason and, and the fence is falling down, and jeremy can 't get jason to, to to pitch in and help get the fence in the right way, and Jeremy ends up in small claims court filing a lawsuit against Jason or any other issue that may you know may not have been even that, but what paul's saying is really how dare you w- what is the lost community saying about god 's community if we can 't self judge some really small matters. Or do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? Now what Paul's doing is, you heard us talk about eschatological realization. You, you heard us talking on the podcast about thinking forward to the end times, to the end state, after the resurrection. Now Paul's hearkening to that language all through here. And what he's saying is, in the end state, don't you realize that you're going to judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to figure out what to do with the stinking fence? Seriously? Or, do you not know that we will judge angels? You might want to underline that, and again, we'll deal with that in the podcast. We don't have time this morning. How much more the matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? Right there where it says no standing in the church, I want you to write unbelievers. In the NIV, it reads this way. Do you choose as those uh, as your judge whose way of life is scorned in the church? What it means is you're asking people who don't know the Bible and who don't agree with our lifestyle as Christians to sit in judgment on matters of lifestyle among Christians. That makes no sense whatsoever, Paul says. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be, listen to the sarcasm now, can it be that there is not one wise person among you? For the love of Pete, church, is there not one wise person among you? Who can take the hands of two Christian brothers and sit them down. Write Matthew 18 in your margin right here. Who can sit two Christians down, put their arms around them, and peel to their faith in Jesus Christ to resolve the matter. What happened to blessed are the peacemakers? Now, I want to challenge you to champion this in your life. I want you to champion putting people together restoratively in relationships and solving issues, not let them be big issues. Most issues in church are small issues that were not dealt with and they fester to be church-splitting mammoth issues. And they have their, it's about the color of paint and the type of carpet and who's going to... It, they're nonsense issues that got escalated to the point of division and that's exactly what Paul's dealing with here and saying, is there, is there not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers. Instead, brother goes to court against brother. Watch this. (laughs) And that before unbelievers. You're killing your testimony in the community. How are we going to win the community to faith in Christ with this nonsense going on in the church? Now, obviously Paul's speaking to a very defeated church. Since they can't resolve their ordinary disputes and their litigations and civil actions have become now a defeat for the whole congregation. Why bring this up, Paul? Because what I do affects my community. You're going to see a constant recurring theme here. Why? Do I have to be a peacemaker? Why do I have to resolve my issues? Why do we have to self-judge? Because your individual behavior, ladies and gentlemen, affects the whole body of this church. We're not reading your mail. We're not peeking through your blinds. We're we're not not hacking into your computer. We're just challenging you from the Word of God. Self-judge. And if you get in conflict with somebody, let's be very quick to try to resolve that in a unified way. So Paul makes a stark contrast between uh, the, the Christians and the unsaved world. He's going to try to snap them out of this regressive behavior. So he's going to contrast those outside the kingdom to those inside who are washed inside the church versus outside the church. Verse seven: As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. I want you to underline, circle, draw arrows to. This is one of the most important statements I think in this whole chapter. Why not rather be wronged? If you don't leave with anything else in your heart this morning, when you get to the next dispute with your spouse, I want you to remember these words. Why not just be wrong? Is being right worth your marriage? Why not just be wronged once in a while? Why not just take it? Watch what Paul says. Why not, you guys talking about how spiritually mature you are, why not just be cheated? Wouldn't it better just to be cheated than to destroy the church's testimony before the lost, unsaved world? Wouldn't it be better to be cheated than to keep somebody from finding Christ and repentance? Why not just take one for the team? Verse 8, instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And what follows is one of these long lists of sins that Paul will sometimes put out there, and here he does it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In case you wonder, well, who are the unrighteous? He's about to give you a long list no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves. Greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And when I read a list of sins like that, you should get another sick feeling in your stomach because you just found yourself in the list. So watch the language that follows. And some of you, underline it, Used to be like this. But you're washed. Praise God. And some of you used to be this. Yeah, we're all here. We're all here this morning. You said, well, I'm not that. No, but you're in the list. We got you somewhere else, so don't worry. And there's a few other lists. If this list doesn't get you, we can show you those lists. Paul's whole point is for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And such were some of you. But three beautiful things happen here. You are washed. You are sanctified right in the margins set apart for God. You are justified, made just in the eyes of God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The problem with the Corinthians is not that they're not washed. Saved and justified. The problem with the Corinthians is that they don't act like they're saved, washed and justified. Which is my problem. I don't always think and have an attitude of a saved, justified, washed person. And their behavior in their context is not changing. This is what's got Paul really worked up. We talk about transformation a lot here. Things changing in your life. We're not so worried that you're having a few struggles with sin. I think that's given. The point is, are you making any progress in your sanctification whatsoever? And we know you are. We know you are. Praise God. We know, we know you are. And when the believers are acting out with regressive... All the parents want to listen right here. When believers are acting out with regressive behavior, we need to be reminded of how to get them out of that regressive behavior. Behavior and Paul's methodology for doing this is to remind them of their salvation story. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. Every parent's going to deal with this as you raise teenagers, junior high boys and girls, and college students. You're going to deal with this as you make disciples of other adults in this community. How do you deal with someone who is in a regressive behavior how do, you, how do you get them to focus on snapping out of that? And Paul's answer is this. Tell me the story of your salvation. Sit down with your 16-year-old that's being a rebel and say, let's just talk this out for a minute. Tell me about how it was you got saved. Who were you and what did Jesus do and what did you do and how is that affecting your life? Because see, what Paul does is he says, here's the list and you're in it, but you are washed. You're sanctified. You've been justified. In light of what Jesus has done for you, I want to challenge you to live a different way. We can't just beat people up and say, live a different way. No. Tell me what Christ has did for you. Let's get back to the cross and the gospel for a minute. And with the cross and the gospel as our backdrop, now tell me, do you think you could take one for the team here and be, be suffer and, and be wronged a little bit in light of the cross, in light of what Christ has done? Do you think in light of what Jesus has done for you that you owe to him to try to behave in a way that glorifies God? If God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and if God in his graciousness has forgiven you of all of your sins for Christ's sake, in light of the fact that Jesus suffered and died on the cross in your place, can you not just take some minor mistreatment at the hands of others for the sake of Jesus Christ? I feel like you could. I feel like you could. Now, I'm not saying you need to be anybody's whipping post or, you know, you know abusive recipient. I'm just saying there are times when the spiritually mature are called to absorb mistreatment. There are times when the spiritually mature are called to absorb some mistreatment. You say, well, it's just not right. I know, and God knows. And He'll reward you. But sometimes the mature just half to absorb it and if you want to talk about how spiritually mature don't talk about it in terms of what sexual sins you allow talk about it in terms of what you'd be willing to suffer for the cross and suffer for the gospel could you absorb some mistreatment out of love for God I guess that's a fair question would you be willing this morning to say to God God I'm willing to be mistreated if it helps advance the gospel I'd be willing to suffer a little bit, God, if it would advance the gospel. All right, I've come to my last thought, and I'm right on my mark. What is the proper view of our bodies? What is the proper view of our bodies then? If the body's not just for pleasure, what is the proper view of our bodies? Let, let me give you Paul's last thought here. So as you look at verse 12, I want all of you to see in your Bibles or your journal, you're going to start seeing quotes. When you see those quotation marks in the text, this only happens in modern Bibles, by the way, and it's such a blessing because it really helps you sort out what are Paul's words and what are zero Corinthian words, what are their words to Paul. These quotes are not Paul's words. Paul is turning their slogans back on them and refuting them. That's what's about to happen. When you see the quotes, those are the Corinthian quotes, okay? And and their argument... uh, Well, he's quoting their slogans for reversing them is really what's happening. And the context is about involvement with prostitutes. I want to keep it all in its context. It's about involvement with prostitutes because this was another humongous problem because all the idol worship involved temple prostitutes and their argument was this. Their argument was that being people of the Spirit has moved us now into a higher reality. And now we live in the realm of the spirit, Uh, and so the things that we do in the body, like going to prostitutes, that's just a bodily function and, you know, people have needs and it has nothing to do with our spiritual, it doesn't affect the spirit world at all. It's a physical function. We live in the spirit and we just really live in a plane above all of that. So really we can do whatever we want to do in the body. It doesn't affect us in the realm of the spirit. That's quite a twisted little way of thinking, isn't it? Watch what Paul says, verse 12. Here's their quote. Everything is permissible for me, the Corinthians say. Paul says not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, the Corinthians say, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. The Corinthians say, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Paul says God's going to do away with both of them. However, The body is not for sexual immorality, but your body is for the Lord. Write Genesis 2 in your margin. The body is for the Lord, living images of Almighty God, filled with His Spirit, living in His temple. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now let me make the argument, and I'll wrap it as quick as I can. Part of their argument Was that all body functions are equal? This is their reasoning. Sex is just like eating food food for the stomach, stomach for food. God put all the nerve endings in the right place. He must have wanted us to have open and free sex. It's free, well, it's not free in their context, they're paying for it, but you get the problem. Sex is just like eating. Sex for the body, here's what's implied. Sex for the body and the body for sex. Both are unrelated to our future life in the spirit world. It doesn't matter, so we might as well live openly and freely in our sexual expressions. Since there are no Christian restrictions, listen carefully. Since there are no Christian restrictions on diet and food... There should not be any restrictions on sexual pleasure. That's their argument. Now, it's not stated just like that, but that's what's implied by Paul refuting their quotes. Christianity says you can eat whatever you want, right? As long as you pray and thank God for it. Okay, so go down to the brothel and pray and say, "God, help me to enjoy this." And go. this is their twisted thinking. It's all a bodily function. So it just doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual world. And Paul's response to them is you guys have a grossly distorted view of Christian freedom. And I want to say to you, so do Americans. Grossly distorted view of Christian freedom. He says you misunderstand the nature of the body, the body belongs to the Lord. And not only does your behavior affect your community, it matters, watch his argument, it matters what you do because your body is going to be resurrected as the living image of Almighty God. And since your body matters in the future, your body matters now. Well, there's an interesting argument. You know what body I'm going to have in the future? This one. Just remade. The important part is not the remade in this conversation. The important part is the, this one. (laughs) Platonism, Greco-Roman philosophy. Platonism taught that what you do in the body does not matter. The only thing that matters is the spirit world and the next life. Very similar to the Baptist tradition I grew up in, in some ways. Everybody's looking just to escape and get to heaven... Paul's reality is very different. You're coming back to earth to rule and reign in a new body, so the body matters and the earth matters. Very interesting. But Paul is contrasting now God's view of the body versus the Greco-Roman wisdom view of the body. The body's for the Lord, and it harkens back again to Genesis chapter 2. You're created in the image of God. He's arguing that the way we live today is that we're to live right now as if we are God's resurrected people or knowing we're going to be God's resurrected people in the end. Let me read this and I'll be done. God raised up the Lord, verse 14, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Now we're back to this. Y'all are the temple of God. Y'all are the body of Christ. Don't you know, ladies and gentlemen, that you are part of Christ's body? Do you know that? Have you ever been taught that? So should I take a part of Christ's body and connect it to a prostitute? Well, there's a good argument. Does that seem like the right thing to do to anyone? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the Scripture says the two become one flesh. Genesis 2 and 3 again. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul makes the conclusion, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but a person who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Don't you know? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have of God? And you are not your own? Now, let me just say in my last three sentences something like this Your body is not a bad thing. Your body's not a bad thing. Your body's a good thing. But you need to understand God's view of your body. Your body is God's temple. Now, here's what we've learned in Corinthians there are two places that the Spirit of God has chosen to live the gathered assembly. ...and your individual body. God has chosen... ...to take up his residence in two places. He inhabits the assembly of the church... ...and he inhabits... ...your individual bodies. So therefore our individual bodies... ...they do not belong to us... ...in an individualistic, selfish... ...self-centered way. Rather our bodies belong to Christ... Purchased through his death and his resurrection and now indwelled as a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. And that knowledge should affect how we live. God lives in you. You take God everywhere you go. Shall you take the temple of God and join it to something ungodly? He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. There's certainly something in that robust teaching for each of us this morning. And I feel certain that cavorting with prostitutes is not our big church issue here this morning. But the challenge to see our bodies as the temple of God, to see this congregation as the holy temple of god may be part of our challenge this morning to have a very high view of the church maybe sometimes uh teaching like we've seen this morning is just a challenge to say hey it matters it matters does it matter how i live yeah it matters it really does matter Maybe even right now in your own life, you're dealing with an issue of division. Is there a way you can be a peacemaker and bring parties together? Let me me ask you another question. Are you dealing with something right now where maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, just let it go? Just take it. For sake of the gospel and sake of the cross, just let it go. Just be wronged. And God knows what you're dealing with. And if you just absorb that for the gospel's sake, you'll have your reward. You'll have your blessing. In light of the cross, can you not just take it? If you've never received Christ as your Savior, and God's really speaking to you about your sins and the need for a Savior, a need to have your heart washed clean. As always, there's some deacons in the back of the room, and any time now, after the service, just go and take one of their hands and say, I want you to pray with me, and they'll know how to help you from there. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to stand, and we're going dismiss our service father thank you for this wonderful wonderful group of christians our family here at cornerstone the body of christ the temple of god god thank you for filling us with your spirit and speaking to our hearts this morning on some really touchy topics god i pray that gives clarity gives encouragement to the congregation Father, when we reflect upon your sacrifice on the cross, may it be that backdrop of our life. The lenses that we see everything through that causes us to realize that what I do affects my community. Because of what you have done, I will yield to the Spirit and I will follow you in my lifestyle. Father, bless your people as we are now challenged to go live this out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll close in a song.